Today's episode with Richard Seymour was recorded on Friday, before the government U-turn on the cut to the 45p top rate of tax that occurred on Monday morning. So I spoke again with Richard just an hour ago to get his thoughts on Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's partial retreat on their mini-budget. You'll hear Richard's comments on this morning's developments next, and then afterwards you'll hear the interview we conducted on Friday. A couple of days ago, we spoke about the UK government's disastrous mini-budget and the economic and political turmoil that came in its wake. And you suggested when we spoke that we might either see Prime Minister Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng stick to their guns and try and hold the line on the abolition of the 45p tax rate and the rest of their proposed rather unpopular measures, or instead that they would suffer what you called a graceless retreat that would be politically damaging for them. The one thing that you ruled out was any kind of effective tactical retreat that would enable them to steady their position somewhat. This morning we've seen them partially U-turn with the announcement that the 45p tax rate will now remain in place. Do you regard that as just the kind of panicked response that you were talking about or do you think there's any way they can finesse this U-turn and steady their position? It depends what we're talking about. I mean, first of all, just to be clear, the uh, retreat is on one aspect of the tax agenda. I understand that the 45p tax rate would have uh, cut government funds by about $2 billion, whereas the total tax cuts uh, would amount to $45 billion. So we've seen a fraction of the tax cuts reversed. This happened to be one of the more uh, obviously unpopular tax cuts because it's clearly directed at higher income earners. But, you know, corporation tax cut is much more expensive. So uh, there's a number of things going on here. First of all, I've noticed that the um, CBI and a number of uh, business coalitions are cautiously in favor of a version of what the conservatives are doing. They don't like the political instability and the market's instability. But they are in favor of what's called supply-side reforms. Well, clearly what they're trying to do is uh, keep control of the narrative while maintaining the bulk of what they want to do. The trouble is, of course, that if the initial problem, aside from their unpopularity of these measures, which I think the government were more than prepared to write out, was that uh, they were going to drive up inflation and lead to higher interest rates, meaning very costly mortgages, possible crash in the housing market. This doesn't seem to make much difference on the economic front. On the other hand, it also does them a disproportionate damage politically. You know, they've just frittered away a lot of political capital. And, you know, the, I mean, not just in actually implementing or trying to implement these measures, but in this U-turn. You know, I mean, I understood Liz Truss was going to uh, go to conference and do a version of uh, The Ladies Not Returning. Well, she can't very well do that now. Yes, I mean, that was the line just yesterday when she was interviewed on the BBC saying unequivocally she would keep the 45p tax rate. Yes, when she was savaged and mauled by Laura Kunzberg, (laughs) the fearless inquisitor uh, of modern British politics. Yeah, no, um, given that Kunzberg's uh, line of inquiry was almost all about optics, Perhaps, uh, and I think that that's been the case with a lot of criticism, um, a lot of it's been surface level, um, even, you know, the much more critical and inter- interrogative radio interviews have been not very in-depth or detailed about the nature of what's happening here, uh, have focused overwhelmingly on the surface level. And a lot of them, you, will, you may have noticed, were very easily deflected. Because when Liz Truss tried to deflect the issue onto managing energy bills, when the unpopular 
and damaging aspect of what she was doing was actually the tax cuts agenda, they kind of let her do that. There wasn't really much pushback on that, which suggests to me that uh, they probably feel like what's needed is some sort of superficial gesture, you know, and we saw that with Kwasi Kwarteng's statement on published on Twitter today, uh, which is, uh, we get it and we're listening. But if you actually look at the substance of the statement, it's pretty clear that they think people are being morons about the 45p tax rate uh, cut, and they're giving it up so that they can get on with the rest of their agenda. So I think that this is going to be more chaotic for them than the many U-turns under Boris Johnson, because Johnson's U-turns were quick, and usually they were total. I mean, I don't want to overstate this. Uh, Boris is quite chaotic in many ways. But, um, for example, if you recall the U-turn on sending kids back to school early during the pandemic, mm. under pressure from the unions and from parents, uh, there was a nearly total U-turn on that. And then the question of the second lockdown, as opposed to regional lockdowns with inadequate uh, financial support, they U-turned on that too late, but nonetheless, uh, they did a, a total U-turn. Um, and so I think that that's smarter than these partial U-turns that don't really solve the underlying problem um, for them. And don't really, I doubt many people are going to be convinced that the government's now on the right track. And frankly... Presumably including within the Conservative Party, after all, they were facing a rebellion um, on on the 45p tax rate. And it seems likely that that was the precipitating factor in in the decision to to, to U-turn. Absolutely. This is the thing. Um, the number of Tory MPs, I mean, I haven't seen a, a net figure here, but there was a large number of Tory MPs reportedly uh, approaching the Labour Party and talking about possibly having a cross-parliamentary coalition to beat the government on this issue. Uh, I just wonder what will happen uh, if they try and push through the other measures. I don't know what Tory MPs are thinking about, for example, the corporation tax cut. I suspect there's a few of them who probably think it's a good idea in principle, but bad timing. You know, this is the wrong time to do it. And, uh, you know, that would be the Sunak position. And I think that would be the position of a large number of other MPs. In other words, I think this is going to be, you know, a chaotic few months. And I don't see the Tories' position improving much in the interim, simply because a more skillful leadership would find a way around this. They would, I think, concede more. And I think that they would or would not have embarked upon such an ambitious agenda in the first place. I just don't think that these guys have the skill uh, to navigate this terrain. Uh, They certainly have enough audacity to give this a try. And they're certainly willing to try and ride out the unpopularity. But they're now up against the global financial and uh, sort of fiscal establishment. They're up against the IMF. You know, they're up against the bond markets. These are institutions that they can't really face down quite as easily. We should be a little bit cautious about this on the left, of course. Mm. The idea of uh, an elected government having its agenda set by bond markets and the IMF is problematic, uh, to say the least. But, you know, there's also another aspect of this, which is, um, as Mao famously said, there's chaos in the kingdom of heaven. The situation is excellent. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success.
the men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. I spoke to Richard about the political fallout from the UK Conservative government's mini-budget, which brought the country close to a full-blown financial crisis. We talked about the intent behind Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's budget, why they've pursued a policy that seems designed to hurt homeowners, a core part of their voter coalition, and whether they are underestimating the degree of popular anger that will meet their economic plans. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. As well as getting access to extended versions of my conversations with Richard, you'll also be able to access longer versions of other PTO episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So day by day, we're seeing the pretty spectacular political fallout from the UK government's mini-budget. We've seen this YouGov poll giving Labour an extraordinary 33-point lead. But before we get into the political fallout, maybe we could start with the intentions of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, because the policy on the face of it seems so destructive and so politically self-destructive that it's given rise to all sorts of speculation from the more conspiratorial kind, suggesting that they were deliberately trying to reduce the value of the pound, to the more plausible suggestion that that they wanted to manufacture uh, a crisis that would provide a pretext for spending cuts. Do you find any of that speculation plausible or do you think the intentions were basically as advertised to to increase growth rates? I think that one of the things that I've picked up about ideology in general is that it's very difficult to have a a completely external instrumental relationship to it. So even if you're a little bit cynical, you know, like a Tory operator, and you understand that your ideology is not, you know, is not to be taken at face value, Nonetheless, you live inside that ideology. So I think that with regard to um, trust and quoting, I think that they fully live inside the ideology, which is pretty much the ideology of the Institute for Economic Affairs um, and the Free Enterprise Group, uh, which is uh, an attempt, I think, to, uh, to reinvent Thatcherism after 40 years of Thatcherism. You know, we've had, we've had 40 years in power and somehow things are still terrible. So you know, we obviously need some sort of new revolution. So I think that's the starting point. My hunch, and that's just that, is that they're not entirely clear on what their uh, objectives are, beyond, of course, that they intend to produce growth and uh, intend to, in the long run, cut public spending. I doubt that they really foresaw the scale of this crisis. I think they saw some backlash coming because they had to. I think the fact that they told the Office of Budgetary Responsibility that they weren't interested in a forecast basically tells us that they knew that uh, the forecast would be very rough for them. I think that suggests that they were a, in, intent on a confrontation. They did tell us before uh, Trust won the uh, leadership election that there was going to be a confrontation with the dominant institutions like the Bank of England and the Treasury, which they accuse of uh, propping up socialism. So um, there's 
a sense in which this is genuinely an insurgent project of the right uh, and that they've decided they have to move fast and uh, create an event that uh, essentially to create reforms uh, that are hard to reverse. And I don't think it's just about reducing the size of the state, though, in their case, I mean, unlike, you know, I would say the mainstream of neoliberalism doesn't really care about the size of the state. I think they do. So there is a sense in which they're trying to move audaciously uh, to trigger a process of reform that is, uh, they hope, let's say, self-generating, self-perpetuating, and that, you know, radically rules out certain left-wing policy options uh, in the future and creates more Tories in terms of its transformation of political economy. But did they did they want to crash the pound? Well, it's it, they they apparently had a meeting with these speculators. It's possible that uh, they thought the pound might crash. That they didn't specifically ask for it to crash, but maybe it's not such a big deal for them. Who knows? What I would say is that um, there's unlikely to be one simple um, motive that explains it all. It's probably an overlapping um, of, you know. Um, ideology of uh, strategic reason of chance contingency um and you know frankly sheer idiocy on that point about trying to create conditions that would produce more conservative voters in the future so in the new statesman brett christopher's had an interesting article in which he suggested that the conservatives have really become the party of of rontiers rather than so-called productive capital and as an example of that he suggested that it may be that the fact that trust and Quartang can seemingly accept this situation where mortgage rates are, are going through the roof is because they are moving away from being the party of homeowners to being the party of, of large corporate landlords uh, for whom this is not such a problem but if that's the case, how does that work for them politically in the next election or even or even long term? Because, you know, obviously, you know, uh, corporate landlords don't have you know more votes than the rest of us and there aren't that many of them. So it does seem peculiar because it seems that they are in some sense attacking their own base or at least, a, a, you know, a significant part of it. Yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not entirely convinced by Brett Christopher's analysis, but um, uh, just to give it its full due, I mean, uh, I think he's 100% right about uh, the changes to the political economy of uh, British capitalism. I think the rise of state rentier capitalism, uh, as it has been called, is very significant indeed, and does indeed help to explain some of the completely dysfunctional anti long term policies that have been embraced. I just think that in this case, uh, it's probably not correct to say that this is going to be welcomed by rentier capital. Um, I just don't see it. Uh, this um, policy, uh, although, yes, of course, in, in one sense, uh, he, he, he gives the example of, you know, um, if you cause a housing market crash, these big global landlord corporations are going to be able to come in, sweep up cheap properties and mm. then start renting it out. And... To be frank, you know, that kind of augury, it has, a, it has a feel of reality about it because that's obviously what these big global landlord companies have been doing. But I doubt that that was their primary objective. I doubt that they were even thinking about that uh, when they implemented this. I really doubt that they want uh, uh, the housing market to crash. They would not have included stamp cut, uh, you know, stamp duty cuts in that budget if they weren't intent, on the contrary, uh, on spurring the housing market to more inflated price levels. 
You know, I think that um, they simply misjudged, you know, the situation they were intervening in because they don't have a realistic apprehension of how British capitalism works. One thing that struck me listening to the interviews that Liz Truss has, has been doing is that going back to your point about the IEA and their sort of immersion in, in you know, sort of quasi-libertarian ideology, is that she uses the language of, of the think tanks. You know, she's on the broadcast media talking about supply-side reform. And that's not a language that's going to be all that familiar to people. It's not the way, you know, people, people typically uh, talk. And it does seem to me to suggest that these are people who are very inattentive to the, to the way in which capitalism needs to make a case for itself and, and yeah. to, to legitimize itself. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, well, the thing about it is, is that uh, although their reference is Thatcher, and particularly the early insurgent Thatcher, um, uh, which Quarteng even wrote a whole book about, they do not have what Thatcher ha- had, which was she was able to talk about these uh, right-wing think tanks talking points, but she was able to use um, ordinary language figures of, of speech, um, homilies, you know, uh, parables and so on, to communicate those ideas in a way that felt commonsensical. So, something also true of, of Cameron and Osborne, to an extent. Yeah, I, I, I think that, I don't know, I mean, I, I, th- I think that they were able to communicate a lot better than Truss and Quarteng, um, that's for sure. But for them, it, it, I, I'm, my broad sense is that it didn't really matter so much for Cameron and Osborne, their communication strategy. They were kind of winning by default because the opposition was so dire. Um, but that's another story. Uh, I, I think that uh, with regard to Liz Truss, she just doesn't have the ability to take these um, uh, rarefied idioms and convert them into a language that is accept- accessible to most people. And maybe she's never had to think about that, you know, because she's spent uh, most of her career um, having been a liberal Democrat for a while um, and having before that been briefly a member of the Socialist Worker Student Society. She, uh, you know, spent most of her career talking to and flattering Tory members and activists. Those mm. are the people who could advance her career. Yes. I mean, she, she's known as the darling of the, of the conference, right? Right, um, which is extraordinary when you think about how she actually performs at conference. But she's <laughs> she's very good at flattering um, and wooing, uh, you know, the constituencies that she needs to woo. And she has, uh, you know, among MPs, uh, it was well known that before Boris Johnson's leadership fell apart, she was having uh, drink sessions called Fizz with Liz. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ex- <laughs> I, I, of all the many things that I've heard about Liz Truss, that's one of the least disturbing. <laughs> um, so the, 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 she's obviously sort of immersed in a particular world and is not very good at communicating that to a wider public. Um, and it's not only that, because, of course, you know, Thatcher not only communicated, you know, mediated between the sort of hardline Hayekian precepts that she was working from and the sort of common sense of most people that she understood contained a powerful element of socialism. Um, But also she was was sufficiently immersed in the real world uh, that she, you know, she picked her moments, she picked her battles. She didn't start fighting the miners immediately she gave it a few years so that the British state could build up reserves and could uh, take on the weaker unions, um, you know, first. 
Mm. Um, you know, she didn't start privatizing immediately either. That wasn't the priority. She uh, took it step by step. And now, I don't think that that's what they're doing here. I think that they're trying to induce a rupture without having the adequate sort of resources, without having a sense of timing, without having a realistic understanding of how capitalism works in the modern United Kingdom. And therefore, you know, it's blown back in their faces, you know. We can get it, we can be a bit too clever about this sort of thing and say, ah, well, you see, all that's priced in. You know, they, they expected all this and now, you know, they're going to be coming for us. Mm. I don't think that's the case, you know. I don't think they had everything priced in. I certainly think they expected some blowback and I certainly think they expect there to be social conflict as a result of their policies. I think they expect strikes and protests and they expect to ride it out. And there, you know, there's some basis to that kind of expectation in in general. It's just that they're not skilled enough, I think, and too detached from the in intimate realities of uh, capitalism and how it works to intervene effectively in this terrain. And can I just say, I mean, I think that's part of a more general problem for trust and trustism. I did a bit of sort of research into the members who liked and supported and voted for trust, trying to get a sense of, you know, what would it be like to be in their shoes um, and to look at someone like trust and hear what she's saying and think, uh, she's making sense. And what you found, generally speaking, is that uh, they were, uh, you know, not particularly wealthy. You know, there's a lot of research that comes out saying, oh, these guys are wealthy. They're so Southeast English, white, middle-class, older males. Well, some of that's true, but the reality is that most of, the, most of them are not particularly wealthy. They're slightly more affluent than the reference population. Um, but what they do have is, generally speaking, they're more likely to own their property, because they're more likely to be retired. Mm. They're more likely to have to paid be... off their mortgage. Exactly. That's what I mean, to own their property outright. Um, they're more likely to be have savings rather than debt. They're less likely to have to work for somebody else or to have to work at all. So they're out of the whole game. They're insulated from the precarities and insecurities and conflicts of capitalism as it's daily lived. Uh, moreover, on top of that, as, as you pointed out, if you own your property you don't really have to worry about interest rates going up. You already own your property. You don't need to go and pay off your, the rest of your mortgage. And if you've got savings, higher interest rates is pretty good for you. You know, uh, when, you, when you look at uh, the difference between the truly wealthy, who are the people who have most of their wealth in the form of assets, and the people who are basically, you know, slightly privileged middle class, but not, you know, not even on the higher end of the middle class. Um, and, you know, the kind of wealth that they have, which is primarily in the form of property, and the kind of debt that they have, which is usually, um, you know, equity release. In other words, they sell a portion of their house back to the bank so that they can have a bit of money to play with in their retirement, that kind of stuff. You look at the, the difference there. What's happened to those people whose uh, wealth is held mainly in the form of property is that their their wealth has declined, relatively speaking, over the you know over the last couple of decades, uh, but particularly since two thousand eight, and so they've lost out from quantitative easing, which has promoted you know the growth of the uh, speculative system, but not really much else. They have being protected from the worst of austerity, but still they're not doing that great. And particularly if you own your property and you live outside the southeast of England, um, property values have not been particularly buoyant. 
And so I think, really, you know, Liz Truss spoke to people who, uh, you know, thought, you know, when she talked about the Treasury being socialist, there's a kind of, uh, she was accessing the kind of culture war which was between, you know, populists and globalists, you know. Um, and there's the idea of a kind of middle-class nationalist populism. Let's, uh, you know, take back control. Let's uh, take power out of the hands of these cosmopolitan bankers and so on. And I think that uh, that's rooted in uh, a stagnation in middle-class living standards. Um, so there's, on the one hand, there's a sense of resentment and uh, a lived experience of class uh, decline in relative terms, and on the other hand, a, a sort of complete insulation from the consequences of uh, these kinds of policies. And I think that that applies to, you know, that that's the, that's the lived experience which is then mediated through these ideologies, um, and that's the lived experience uh, of uh, uh, the kind of social base of trustism. And to some extent, you know, when you look at trust and Quarteng, obviously they're not in the same sort of social demographic range. They're bourgeois, you know, they have quite a lot of money. But um, they are certainly no less insulated. They're not people who even get about in the world as, uh, you know, effective capitalists who know how to invest money um, and make surplus value and all the rest of it. So I think that there's that sort of principle of detachment and middle-class resentment underpins a lot of this. Do you think we're about to see some kind of backtracking? I mean, the, the most likely thing seems to be that they may try to delay the promised tax cuts, although previously Trust has stated that she's committed to staying the, the course. I don't think that they have the um, common sense or the tactical skill to know how to beat a retreat at this point. A retreat that's not disastrous for them. Exactly, yeah. that's the thing. I, I, my, my sense is that either they're going to um, brazen it out, and you know we've seen this on the right quite a lot in recent years. You know, confidence men, as I like to call them, uh, sort of whose whole uh, kitsch and gimmick is that they will take extraordinary risks because they're they're not used to being in power. They don't expect to be in power for long. And uh, they're they're prepared to try things out, innovate, to use that uh, appalling language. And we've seen this with Farage. We've seen it obviously at a more uh, sort of high level audacious scale with Trump and the attempted soft coup in the United States. You know, we've seen all this sort of stuff. And I think that they will uh, essentially try and face down uh, their critics. But they're under so much pressure that they may basically do a graceless U-turn. Um, and will not be able to uh, style it out in the way that Boris Johnson would have been able to. Um, and by style it out, I mean, in Boris Johnson's case, it was simply a matter of him being, um, uh, you know, sufficiently charmingly chaotic in his appearance that uh, people would forgive him for a U-turn so long as they thought he was doing the right thing. I don't think that's going to happen here. I think that these guys were already despised. I think they've already uh, blown their wad as far as any public appreciation is concerned. They were never going to get a honeymoon, contrary to the um, lugubrious doomsaying of uh, some on the Labour right who felt that Liz Truss was uh, going to take their heads. 
they were never going to have a, a, a any kind of a serious honeymoon with the public and there was no sign of that happening but they were certainly stabilizing there was a sense that uh, King Starmer was so bad that he was slipping below trust in personal approval ratings and so on and now they've done this and I don't think they can reverse it um, I think someone put it uh, in in the papers the other day you can't unburn toast Someone I've talked to on the podcast before is, is Aaron Davis, and he, he's written about the way in which ruling class solidarity has, has declined, that the individualism that neoliberalism has fostered has, has also infected the, the Conservative Party and other, other elite institutions. And if they are just passing through, and if they are just happy to try things, do you think possibly part of what's going on is that they're thinking in a more long-term sense, that they're thinking about indeed trying to do things that then become sort of baked into the to the UK economy and that the Labour Party can't or won't then then reverse uh, and obviously you know although they never talk about this they do have their eyes on further stripping back you know the benefit well the benefit system which in fact they do you know talk about stripping back and, and trusts on record record as doing so in the past but but also crucially the NHS which they always have to sort of pretend to to want to, to protect I think that Aaron Dibby's analysis of uh, contemporary elites is very important and I agree with it um, uh, or at least it explains a lot with regard to trust and quoting I think that they're not quite insiders to the ruling class anyway. And I don't necessarily see them as being the precisely the types in terms of, you know, ruling class reckless opportunists that Aaron Davies describes. Typically, they would be people like Boris or, in another sense, Tony Blair. Um, you know, people who uh, exude enormous amounts of energy, are very charming for like five minutes, do a lot of meetings, that kind of stuff. And they uh, are, in that sense, detached from any corporative solidarity uh, to a wider um, establishment interest, uh, detached from traditional values of um, duty, you know, uh, things like that and much more committed to the sort of neoliberal virtues of innovation, you know, that kind of thing. I think that's that certainly ex- explains people like uh, Blair, Cameron, and uh, Boris Johnson, uh, less so perhaps uh, Gordon Brown and Theresa May. But these guys, I just think, are, are not, they're not insiders, you know. I mean, I know that Kuateng, um, you know, is a proper Etonian uh, boor and he went to Harvard and everything. And I know that he's an accomplished academic. But I, I, I think that I, I see him as somebody who's, who's not trying to be part of the ruling class. He's trying to be an effective right-wing pugilist. And... You know, obviously that you want money, you know, you you seek money that comes with uh, obtaining money. But I don't think that's it's primarily about fighting a battle for the capitalist class in that sense. And the same thing with Liz Truss. So I think that their conduct is that of insurgent outsiders, the sort of insider outsider of the right. And I think you're right, you know, in a sense, they're passing through uh, much as one passes through the lower intestine. Um, and they're going to try and leave a trace, um, you know, bake stuff in. And that's what fundamentally all of this is about. The thing about it is, is um, from the point of view of the trade unions um, and the social movements, and even Keir Starmer couldn't have asked for a better opponent because they are precisely the sorts of people who are going to pick fights when they're not prepared to win them and have to execute these uh, U-turns. And of course, unlike uh, Johnson, who did have the 
uh, nose to you know execute U-turns pretty quickly. I think they will drag it out and drag it out and drag it out until they can't um, uh, until they get, can't drag it out any further. I mean, yeah, I do find myself wondering when people say, oh, this, you know, this particular figure is the perfect opponent, because some very intelligent people were saying that about Boris Johnson. And, you know, I, I think at times I thought there was something to that when he came to power. I think a lot of people were pushing that about Boris Johnson for one specific reason. He was clearly going to win and he was clearly going to be a more dangerous opponent than Jeremy Hunt, you know. Uh, and so you had to look on the bright side of that and say, well, we know a lot about him. We know all his scandals. We can use that against him, blah, 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 blah. Hmm. But the reality is, I think, you know, Boris Johnson wasn't a genius. Dominic Cummings wasn't a genius. But they were um, the most potentially dangerous uh, sort of opponents that Labour could have faced. And that's borne out in the results. I just don't think that's ever been plausibly true of Blaise Trust and Quasi Quarteng. When it comes to what they may try to do to placate the markets, whether or not the intention with a mini-budget was to provoke a crisis that would then enable cuts, which I think probably neither of us think is is, is quite right. But nonetheless, now in this situation, that seems to be on the table as, as something that's certainly being discussed. A lot of people are arguing that you know, looking at the, at the state, you know, it seems as if there's not really a lot that you plausibly could cut back without just catastrophic political consequences. And we're already seeing dire polls for the Tories. Um, who knows what further slashing the welfare system might do? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think they've got a lot of room for manoeuvre here. Um, it's it's very clear that... The, they, so, sorry, they, Richard, I, I should say as well, I mean, I should say that the other possibility is to cut capital spending. But of course, that's, you know, a driver of growth. And if, if the project is growth, they need that. Yeah, um, my my sense is that their impulse would be to privatise and outsource whatever the remains of the welfare state and to cut back quite drastically. Um, and they're already looking for uh, savings, economies and so on. That's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt them very badly. You know, I'm sure you've noticed uh, Liz Truss being taken up in one of those radio interviews on uh, the issue of the hospital in King's Lynn, which is her constituency, which uh, is basically falling apart uh, and has to have something like 1,500 props to hold up the roof. It hasn't been invested in for years. It wasn't built to last, and it wasn't supposed to be the, 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 the hospital that would uh, uh, you know, be there for years. And uh, she's, she had nothing really to say. I mean, she said, well, we've got a new health secretary, Therese Coffey. Uh, I hope that she'll be the one to turn this around which basically means nothing. You know, there's no commitment. Um, and, the, the, you know, the, the entire health, si- health system is in a crisis. I mean, it's in a worse crisis depending on where you are in the country. But uh, the amount of NHS trusts that are in the red, um, the number of hospitals that are falling apart, that are in disrepair, um, the, uh, the, the difficulty that people now have accessing their GPs, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a great thing. We're being told that you can access your GP within two weeks. Two weeks! You know, you need a, a, a GP appointment that day. You're being told, well, you can have one within two weeks. It might be too late by that point. It's ridiculous. And there's no serious um, thought or reflection about that because it's not a priority of theirs. So I, I think that they're caught between, on the one hand, there's not much left to cut without seriously... Uh, provoking a major social crisis uh, which could swallow them up. And on the other hand, of course, 
they can't sustain a high amount of debt for very long. If they had a plausible debt repayment program, and of course there's nothing intrinsically wrong with borrowing large amounts of money and paying it back over the long term, as long as uh, interest rates remain low. But, you know, the, the way in which they've done it, done it has been shambolic. My concern really is that they will uh, get themselves kicked out, uh, that the Tories will overthrow Liz Truss and have their third leader in as many years. And then we'll end up with a situation in which Labour gets elected, though, with nothing like the lead that it currently has, and uh, essentially is under enormous pressure to implement austerity. Um, because, you know, they'll be inheriting public finances in an absolute wreck. And because uh, the Bank of England and uh, the International Monetary Fund and so on are all lined up telling them this is what has to be done. And because, frankly, quite a lot of uh, middle-of-the-road liberals and people on the centre-left are begging the markets to undo what the Tory electorate has done. Uh, in other words, they're invested in the power of the IMF and the power of the, uh, you know, the guilt markets and so on. Mm. They're to, not about to uh, pick their own fight with them. Exactly. Um, and, you know, like the, it's it's but I don't think they, they thought this through in a particularly rigorous way. No, it's about no. it's the same way in which people often thought the Queen was going to bail uh, bail us out over Brexit, you know. She, she's really secretly against Brexit, you know, and she's been telling the government off and she's going to help us, Mom. So I, I think that there's a sense in which, um, you know, the, the sort of middle of the road uh, of British politics uh, is looking desperately for a saviour. And I think that they found it in the IMF and the, the stock markets and so on, who are turning against and trying to discipline and intimidate a very right wing government. Well, the danger is then you get a government that is beholden to the IMF and the stock markets and, you know, the bond sellers and so on. And their undemocratic power is even more confirmed. And, well, we know where that leads. On the poll leads that Labour is, is achieving, which, which are genuinely uh, astonishing, you know, people describing them as, as uh, representing a, an existential threat to the Conservative Party, that, you know, the kind of thing that could really see them annihilated at the next election. Uh, and, you know, ideally hope that's right. But do you think it's, it's an absolute given that the Tories would lose the next election? Because I, I suppose one thing that I wonder about is, you know, it's taken as a kind of iron law of politics that divided parties don't win elections. But the Conservatives have been doing that, despite having, you know, very stark factional differences in, and increasingly so over, over time. And one of the benefits of factionalism is that if things go wrong, you can blame that faction and say, well, you know, our hands are clean. That'll be you know, the position of someone, someone like Rishi Sunak, for instance, or, or, or Sajid Javid, perhaps. And I wonder how much these days the public think about the Conservative Party as a party in, in a traditional sense. You know, do they think of it as a sort of coherent entity or do they think of it as a field of political struggle on which these different factions fight it out and you decide, you know, which of those factions is more sort of uh, amenable to you? Yeah, no, I think that this is uh, very, 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 very damaging for the entire Conservative Party. Uh, nobody's going to come out of this looking particularly good. Mm, yeah. uh, it is true that there's um, a sort of will in part of politics. And we've heard this from a number of columnists and jur journalists and so on for a kind of national government with Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak implementing plausible economic policies back to normality. That this is the, the Italian solution, I suppose. Yeah, um, and it's it's awful. Uh, and it's particularly, it's unnecessary. I mean, the idea that you would reward Rishi Sunak 
Um, but this is something that I've heard uh, Peter O'Born and Paul Mason and various others say. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, there's a sense in which obviously uh, some people would like to think that there's uh, a faction of the Conservative Party that they can work with. Uh, and I understand where that's coming from, but uh, I think that this has just in, in been damaging for the entire Conservative Party as a brand because it's been, what, 13 years now, 12 years since the Conservatives were elected. We've had all the different Conservative teams in. We've had the um, sort of uh, neoliberal Austerian uh, administration of Cameron and Osborne. We've had an attempt to uh, reinvent the Tories as Christian Democrats uh, by Theresa May. We've had the sort of um, Brexit has a regime of, of Boris Johnson. And now we've got this uh, quasi libertarian project of the sort of neoliberal far right. Uh, I mean, uh, what's left? What other faction is there? Seriously? So I think that they're um, uh, seriously damaged. As regards the polls, let's be honest, the polls are not going to look like that come the election in 2024. The Tories are not going to call an election until the polls are looking a little bit better. Mind you, I mean, well, let me put it like this. The least we can say is that uh, if Labour does have a significant lead, it's not going to be 33%. And the question is, will the lead be sufficiently eroded that Keir Starmer can blow that lead. He can't blow 33%. If he had, if he walked into an election with a 33% lead, and mind you, that's just one poll, you know, he, he could be caught uh, fidgeting with a badger or something and still uh, be elected. You know, there'd be no problem. But if he walks in there with, uh, let's say, a 7% lead, well, that's a more fluid situation. And we've seen how big and violent the swings in British politics have been just in the last couple of years. I mean, just consider the massive difference between uh, 2018 and 2019 in terms of the polling, and then between um, 2021 and 2022, and then 2022 and 2023 in terms of um, the enormous uh, sort of polling uh, swings that we've seen. Uh, it, it's just incredible. And... For that reason, the volatility of British politics being what it is and the thinness of people's investments in their political parties, the lack of any deep party identifications, the, the fact that um, it's not a big difference between whether you vote or not um, in terms of, you know, you might be motivated to vote by a good social media campaign, you know, that uh, reaches you for, for some reason. There's a lot of contingencies is what I'm saying. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.